survey comes spinning out of the turn. Secretariat now by five lengths. Michael in second, Aronita third. They're coming to the A4. Secretariat by five lengths. They pass the A4 of the mile, 135. Secretariat all by himself. America's super horse, Ron Kirkcott up. 50 yards to come. Secretariat by seven. Secretariat eight lengths. And Michael and Aronita this third. Welcome to Equisport Radio, your VIP pass to the world of horse racing. Down the stretch they come, Cassidy's digging in at the rail. Les Falsman, take you inside the gate, behind the scenes, to the heart of horse racing. Equisport Radio. Get tied on. Hey, and welcome to Equisport News Network's Hubrail Insider. Today we're doing something new, different, and hopefully exciting. This is Les Salzman, and it's the first of four harness racing roundtables focusing on improving the sport. Up ahead, we'll have panels of owners and breeders, trainers and drivers, and young guns. The goal is to provide a positive forum for moving the sport that we love forward. And this episode of Equisport News is going to be commercial free. So you'll be able to listen and not be bothered by commercials. And if you want to call in, our call in number is 1-800-627-6008. That's 1-888-627-6008. And now on the Dunhill Equine Network hotline, we have Jason Saddlemore, who is the recent, a recent USTA presidential candidate and is currently the CEO and GM at Winners Bayonne, vice president of racing at, uh, at the Meadowlands and uh, the CEO and GM at the Red Meadowlands. I'm sorry. Jason, I have to apologize. That's a lengthy resume to get through. Congratulations on being so active. Uh, another guy that's very active in Another guy that's very active in the sport is Bob Pandolfo. Bob's been a handicapper and sports writer for decades. Uh, I remember him back when I was a pup, uh, when he was at the Daily Racing Forum and American Turf Monthly and a handicapper for the USTA. He's also authored several horse racing-related books, including Pace Handicapping, Long Shots. Uh, our third guest is Freddie Hudson, also a re recent USTA presidential candidate and is currently involved in marketing and promoting harness racing and is the founder of the Roosevelt Raceway website. Uh, and they're producing a documentary and they're having an alumni weekend. It's, it's pretty cool. And Andy Berg, who one of the guys that pioneered the numbers or the figs uh, in the standard bread side and a Meadowlands regular uh, is with us as well. So guys, welcome. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks, Les. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and we're going to keep. And it, this is going to be kind of a loose form that we're going to have. I'll I'll throw out a question, and then if you guys can jump in and answer, that's going to be great. Uh, and if, again, if any of the folks listening want to call in, uh, they can give us a call at eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. Over, by the way, and we'll intersperse during the uh, show, we had a ton of emails with questions, so we've got a lot to cover. But the first thing, first thing I want to ask you guys is if we were to start the whole thing over, right from scratch, what would be the one thing that you would do to, to make kind of the cornerstone of the industry? Uh, and Freddie, why don't we start with you? Boy, I would go back and look at what Levy did. You know, he basically did the nighttime racing, half-mile tracks, but we have to take the new um, innovations. And some of the new innovations is we have to use the technology that is out there. And what the Hong Kong Jockey Club has done is they've come up with a simulator app that's on the phone. And I would right. start building around that to bring in the younger people. Um, we need to get the younger people out there. And I would also focus on event racing. 
and, and I think those are very important things. Now, uh, Andy, as as a as a better, and as a handicapper, uh, what do you see? Um, if I had to start the whole thing over again, I would build more mile tracks and have more ten horse racing because that's been the proven uh, proven to be the most popular with fans and brings in the most money and and creates the most exciting racing and the most uh, the most bang for your buck as far as a gambler is concerned. So that's what I would do. I would I would not have built all these smaller tracks which we have today, and I would have I would have focused on building bigger tracks if I had it all to do over again. Now, a quick question on that. You know, because if you use 10 horses in each race and we have a dwindling horse population, would you advocate maybe fewer race dates? Yeah, I, w you wouldn't have a choice, but you asked me what I would do if we were starting out again. <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> just a follow-up question to it. And I, I think I, I happen to agree with you. I think that a 10-horse field... Just the visual makes it a lot more exciting, let alone from the handicapper's perspective. Yeah, because at the top of the stretch, so many horses can win. And on a half-mile track or a five-eighths, that's not the case. No, I, I think you're right. And Bob uh, Pandolfo, Bob, yeah. what, what would you think? Well, I mean, if I was starting all over again, I, I, I would just keep everything the way it was back then. I mean, the problem with the sport of harness racing is that we had a good formula. Um, uh, at Roosevelt and Yonkers, for instance, which is where I started out, um, the racing was good. So what we did is we changed it. So <laughs> basically, we, we, if we reversed the negative changes we made to the sport, it, it would help you know, dramatically. So give, give me an idea of some of those changes. Well, that they made the, I mean, the, the, the decline on half-mile tracks actually started in the late 70s when they, when Joe King introduced his modified sulky, which was the first steel sulky. And as soon as that bike appeared on half-mile tracks, the speed started to hold up more, favorites started to win more. And that kind of opened up this whole Pandora's box where every few years somebody manufactured a new sulky that was even faster and better. And as, each, as the evolution of the Sulky went on for all these years, it, it became a speed, it created a tremendous speed bias and also a post position bias. And that is why you have so many low payoffs. And, and of course, one-dimensional racing without, without the three wide moves you used to have, which were exciting and, and off-the-pace winners. So basically, we basically took a great product and ruined it. So, so would you possibly have the tracks issue the race bikes or yes yes uh, i think in fact it's funny i've been writing i've written about this many times and some people i guess think i'm some sort of old curmudgeon who longs for the glory days but it has nothing to do with you know nostalgia it's just either you're going to put out your best product or you're not the best product was in the, the old wooden bikes because the races were slower so the horses could you know went from off the pace and it was more exciting um, and it's funny because Brett, Brett Pelling, who's a Hall of Fame trainer, is is uh, recently coming back from Australia. He's going to start training here again. He is, you know, he's one of the greatest trainers in the history of the sport. And he was right. interviewed recently by Harness Racing Update, and he said all the drivers should have the same bike, and the bikes are too fast. It's bad for the sport. And uh, so, you know, there are a lot of people who agree with me, but the thing is getting one of these tracks to purchase the bikes and, and, and implement it is, is difficult. Well, let's ask Jason if he'll spend the money to buy the bikes. Jason, not putting you on the spot, you know. Uh, no, no, that's but, fine. Uh, Bob and I have had that conversation before uh, through email, and we actually tried it at Tioga Downs, if Bob remembers. Uh, you know, we, we put the uh, wooden race bikes on the track uh, for a race there that was approved by the uh, New York uh, Gaming Commission. And uh, we tried it there. And look, I, you know, I'm not uh, opposed to all the drivers having the same race bikes. I think it's important. Um, you know, that's uh, some a variable that people, that the gamblers, could take out of all the the different race bikes. You, you know, one of the things, and I, I, I don't drive anymore or train anymore. But one of the things as a spectator that I see with with the faster bikes. The horses are wearing much more equipment, you know, and visually, again, that may not be that appealing to the public. Yeah, no, and, and, and 
to go back to your original question that you asked, if I was to start over again, the thing that I would do is I would go back and make sure that, uh, you know, we put our best foot forward and uh, putting our sport on television um, because you essentially have missed my generation, um, you know, by not having our sport on television and, and with the marketable events, the, the big races and putting our big foot, you know, our best foot forward. Um, so that's what I would have done. I would have uh, went back and, and put the uh, our best events, our best races on TV and, and promoted it, uh, similar to what they have. Uh, they've done a pretty decent job with uh, the big three races and thoroughbred racing being the Derby, uh, the Freakness and the Belmont. They've done a great job with the breeders. Um, and getting those on TV with the races leading up to them. So, uh, you know, that's what I would have done if I had to start all over again, is put, put our marketable races and, and, and on, on TV so that my generation could see them. And, it's, and again, I think it goes back to an oversaturation of product as well. Um, but, you know, and then you can go into the whole simulcasting thing where I have a lot of, uh, you know, where, you know, whoever sells their product for 3%, you know, those types of things. Um, where the simulcast model is broken. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of different things that I would have done, but the first and foremost has been to make sure that we were on TV. Jason, to piggyback on that, and I think you guys are doing a great job uh, with your replay shows uh, being on SNY, and, and the general public is getting to see them, not just the TVG public, and the, the people that you have on the show. You know, reaching out to a younger demographic. Uh, do you do that with all your racetracks, or, or can you do it with all your racetracks economically? We try to. I mean, you know, one of the the greatest things about working for uh, Mr. Grau, Jeff Grau, is that he, he allows me to do what I love, and that's, uh, you know, market and, uh, you know, the sport of horse racing, just not our, our casino. Um, but we, you know, um, there's a you know, an apparent reason why, you know, we, we look and try to uh, change things up on a, on a, on a regular basis um, to, so that we can get the right feel for the customers that we're trying to attract outside of the ones that we already have. Um, you know, so yes, I mean, we try to economically, it's very, very tough. Um, but again, you know, Jeff allows me to send the money, um, you know, where we reasonably can. Um, you know, because uh, the horse racing portion of it of our two casinos in upstate New York is a very, very small portion of our bottom line revenue. Um, and, and of course, at the Meadowlands, we rely solely on imports and our live racing and exports and food and beverage revenues as well. Including beverage revenues, did I hear? I'm sorry? Did you say including beverage revenues? Food and beverage, yes. Food and okay. beverage is one okay. of the areas that we're, that and, we're marketing. Does that make a, that's interesting. Does that make a big part of uh, what your bottom line what, looks like? It does, yes, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, when we first uh, took over the Meadowlands there, we were losing uh, probably close to a million dollars. The Meadowlands was losing close to a million dollars in food and beverage in a year. And then uh, when we took over, we've actually started to uh, – turn a profit there in the food and beverage area so um that's actually uh, exciting uh, to see that but yes i think that's a, it, especially for us at the meadowlands it's a very important part of our business and then our casinos in upstate new york as well that's a very 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 important part of our our, our business as well our bottom line so that brings us to our, our our next question who is who actually is the game we're business targeted to meaning are we focused on the fan the player or the participants, or all of the above? And how do you blend those goals in, in a marketing package? And uh, let's go the same route. Uh, who wants to answer first? Uh, I'll, I'll answer first. Touch on I think it's all of the above. This is great. We'll i got to go with the same guys here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, answer and then, I'll, and then I'll stop talking. Okay. Um, okay. I think it's all. Of the, I think it's all of the above. Uh, we have to focus on our core gamblers as well. Um, you know, that I think that's one of the, the biggest things that, that we've missed is is the focus on our core customer, the gambler that's there day in and day out playing our product. We need to make sure that the customer service that they're getting is is excellent, just like everybody else. But I, I also think that we should be marketing to. Uh, my generation that we miss and the future generations as 
well. And again, that's why I go back to the TV thing, uh, you know, and then we have to, as Freddie said at the beginning of the show, we have to be using technology that is currently there to to, to get these, these younger people involved um, in the races. But yeah, my, my personal opinion is, is that we have to focus on all of the above. And it has to start with the with the people that we have currently, the gamblers that we have currently, because they vote with their with their feet, and and they have obviously uh, started going to other forms of entertainment um, over the last 20, 25, 30 years. That's an interesting point. And let me ask you this again, as an outsider, do you think that part of that is because of lack of access to information? For example, I, I'm I go, to... go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I think you're right. I think there's a, you know, look, Major League Baseball gets all their stuff away. Uh, the NFL, you know, uh, you know, all everything is out there and it's a resource that these people can use, um, you know, in, in, in betting on Netflix in, in the states that it's legal in. And, uh, you know, listen, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, sports betting, I believe, is like almost a four billion dollar industry um in the uh in just the united states alone i could be off on that but uh, for some reason that number stick in my head um but yeah i mean the information is there and available for them to use and uh you know my opinion kind of you know we try at the meadowlands when we have a you know our pick so we put those out on our website and when we have carryovers we get permission to put those program pages out on our websites and on our big days um, so that there's access to them. And you can see the, the number of hits on our website. They go, when we have carryovers for big days, they go dramatically up So it, with people accessing that information. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's very, very important to be able to get the information in people's hands. And I think that when we make it hard to get that information in people's hands, people are turned off by it. And, you know, I'm going to Pompano tonight, right? And so I just said to myself, let me... Let me just do, be a consumer. So I Googled Pompano Park entries. Okay. It has to cost me just to see who's entered. Okay, as a consumer. Unless I go to the Pompano Park website, which you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out, and then I get the overnight. You know, so if I'm a consumer, how can I get excited about the, the participants in the sport if they're hidden from me, and and that's that's personally one of my pet peeves. But let's go to one of the other guys, uh, Bob. Do you want to go next? Um, okay. Yeah, you know, I, everything that we're saying, I think, is good. I mean, obviously, it'd be nice to promote the sport, have it on television more. Uh, I think that one of the the, the perils that that we're in is that uh, you know the Meadowlands uh, is a two-turn track. And so it's, it's much easier for people to go there and, and, and see good racing because on the bigger tracks like that, like Hoosier Park, the Meadowlands, there aren't that many of them. Uh, the racing is still pretty good because you have a long stretch. And the problem is, though, there are a lot more half-mile tracks and 5 h tracks. And you know, if, you're, if you want to get people excited about the sport, you have to get them to the track. Well, once they get to the track, if the racing is bad, they're not going to come back. And, you know... If you look at a lot of these tracks, like Yonkers Raceway has a has a big problem. I mean, they have the best horses, the best purses, the highest purses, the you know the best drivers, and their racing is is awful because nobody pulls. Uh, you know, they they go around in single file for three turns, and then somebody pulls first over in the backstretch. It, it, it's just you know, and the favorite usually goes wire to wire, or the or the pocket uh, second choice wins from the pocket. So if somebody, you know, you invite somebody to the track for the first time, it's not like years ago. Like when I went to Roosevelt Raceway, uh, one of the first horses I bet was fourth over and made a giant three-wide move down a backstretch and went from eighth to first, and I was hooked. It was exciting. Now, you know, like unless you can get them to come to the Meadowlands or Hoosier Park or one of these uh, bigger tracks, then they're never going to come back. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, you've got to... You, if you market and you bring somebody to the track and they're bored, if somebody bets a horse from the six hole, let's just say, and he never makes a move and he sits sixth around the track, he's not going to come back. It's not interesting. Like right now at Yonkers Raceway, as we know back in the heyday of Yonkers and Roosevelt, the whole 
half the field would be inside, half the field would be outside by the half. Right now, more than half the races, only one horse or less pulls at the half on at Yonkers. You could check the charts any night you want. So we have dull racing, and uh, it's got to be, I think the product has to be addressed. And um, what Bob said about the bikes is correct. It's making the horses go faster, and the game is out of balance. We also had, this is not a pure bread, the standard bread, like the thoroughbreds are. Like, like we started off this broadcast with great win by Secretariat. A lot of his track records still stand. This is not a pure bread game, so we keep improving the breed. But as we improve the breed, the game goes out of balance. But to exacerbate that, we've had these bike, quote-unquote, improvements, and making it so easy for the horse to get around this mile. So guys don't pull now because they know they're not going to cross over and get the advantage of getting the lead in the rail. So they don't, it's suicide. So they don't, they, they wait a long time to pull. It's a slow second quarter, not much movement. And therefore you have dull racing. So I think if you get somebody to the track, you've got to have the good product to back it up. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. true. That you get a lot of look-alike races. If if you look at a card at, at a half mile or five eighths mile track, and you look at the eight or ten races that they're running, you know, every race does look alike. And sometimes, because we have a preponderance of the best drivers driving the best horses, even even the driver colors look alike. So it, it's it's very it lacks the excitement, maybe, that we want. Well, wouldn't. I think that actually on a half-mile track, the better the horses, the worse the racing. I mean, if you look at the old Northfield racing from a few years ago, the horse, it was the Wild West, and it was actually a little exciting. But these horses are so good at Yonkers that you can't break the speed. It's iron, and you get a lot of short prices, lineups, and just that's not the kind of racing that we want to have to attract people to the sport. Yeah, so basically, and by the way, I mean, this is Bob Pandolfo. And by the way, you know, my suggestion of going back to like the older bikes, the, the other thing that you could do is if they, run, if they want to keep these speed favoring sulkies, is you'd have to race longer distances. Um, the problem with that, though, is every time the tracks try that, their, their, their eroding fan base uh, has, you know, a certain percentage of those people say, oh, no, 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 I don't like that. I like one mile racing because they can't figure out how to handicap, they, you know, they get confused. So you're in a bit of a bind there, but if you don't, you know, if you're going to run one mile races on half mile tracks, uh, those tracks are not going to be in business much longer uh, with the bikes that we're using. One thing I wanted to point out too is, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you take, for example, with the Meadowlands and uh, Tioga and Vernon, where, you know, we try to, you know, what we like to see is the drivers closing the holes, and if they do let somebody in front of them, that they gotta, you know, they gotta, they gotta pull right away. Um, you know, and, and this, you know, so because everybody talks about these lines, you know, where they're lined up, and there's no action and there's no movement. But if, uh, you know, we could get the drivers to close the holes, and uh, you know, and if somebody lets somebody in, they're right out moving. You know, uh, that should, you know, those types of things, you know, to make the, the racing. Uh, more exciting and you know because again you know if you bring somebody to the track as somebody said earlier you bring somebody to the track and it's boring uh, the, the chances are they're not coming back Absolutely. Right. this is a uh, thread you know i have i have sent people to the track to watch the races and they've literally told me they're not going back because the races were so boring and uh, a, a couple of other reasons but we do have to balance it out and one of the things i have always said is we have to fix the product the product is broken in every single direction that you look. If you drop yourself in the middle of harness racing and you look in any direction, there's something wrong with it. Um, once we can fix the product, we can market the hell out of it. Um, I do agree that we need to be on national television. We need to get our races there. Um, we have to get rid of the passing lane. That's been one of the most one of the ter most terrible things that's ever happened to our sport. Uh, it's caused a lot of these problems with the races being boring. And I'll turn it back over to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. And by the way, Andy and, and I, this is Bob, and Andy and I both agree with Fred about the passing lane. Uh, one of the ter another terrible innovation that completely backfired. 
Yeah, and you know, as a spectator, it, it makes it just so difficult to watch the race. It really does. Uh, I, I have always wondered why they couldn't put up rails like they do in the thoroughbreds, where the actual rail itself is 24 or 30 inches away from the post. And and that would solve the problem. Yeah, so uh, that, that was Meadowlands, I, the Meadowlands used to have that. Jason, is, is there a reason that that switched? Or? Well, there's no passing lane at the Meadowlands, and there's no passing lane at Tioga, and there's no passing lane at Vernon Downs. The inherent problem that you have is that when these horses swing off of the top of the stretch at, 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 at places that don't have passing lanes, and by the way, I agree with you guys. I don't I don't care for passing lanes either. I think it takes the equipment out of it. I think it takes the planning out of it, and that's why you don't see them at our three tracks. You know, Jeff and I are certainly, uh, you know, we're aligned on, on this, and, you know, the, the one thing that concerns me, though, is when these horses spin off the top of the stretch, at the top of the stretch, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're coming out and then horses go up on the inside and, and it looks like you have a passing lane and you don't. And, and people become infuriated. Why does, how did that horse get through on the inside, you know? And, and you know, so look, yeah, I agree. I think passing lanes have taken a lot of the strategy out of it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and when they take the strategy out of it with these passing lanes, it, you know, it takes out the excitement because, you know, these people aren't coming up and out of the hole. I just got a, a text message from Cliff from Philadelphia who uh, writes, I'm a longtime fan and owner. The main issue for players and owners and the sport is that the racing is too fast. Racing is often boring. Last night at Yonkers, there were several races where ra races lined up one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, for most of the mile. That's right. It's also hard if you're an owner yep. to keep your horses sound. There's too much stress on the horses. I'd like to I'd look at bikes the way track surfaces are constructed, and anything else that would slow things down. That's kind of consistent with what you guys are saying. Um, drivers are now getting behind the bike by two to three feet. Two to three feet they're going behind the bike. And why is that their space? And that's pushing, pushing the last horse back. Yeah, yeah. Brett Pelling, by the yep. way, uh, also agree with that. The way the drivers lean back... In Australia, Brett Pelling was saying that they actually disqualify horses when the driver is leaning too far back. Because what's happening, and Andy's right about this, this is, uh, what's happening is now the horse that's, say, eighth on, on a, on a five-eighths or a half-mile track is 12 lengths behind instead of eight or nine lengths behind. So how's it going to catch up? <laughs> so, yeah, you know. It's going to horse in a pocket. Who's who? Who's wants to be right on top of the leader? He's pushed back by two to three feet, and some of these drivers are pretty tall. They get back behind that bike, and you know they'd be three feet behind the uh, behind the seat. Right. Well, the other thing is when we. The other thing is when we back in Ohio. He uh, when he when you know he's the chairman of the Ohio State Racing Commission, and he's tried to address this on several different instances. And they've done a fairly good job out there with the under control out in Ohio with, you know, with this, um, you know, and they've made a lot of progress in Ohio, not just from a breeding aspect and with, you know, having casino gaming there, but they've also made a lot of progress with uh, enforcing their rules in Ohio as well. So, um, you know, the, they're in all these different jurisdictions, they, you know, the focus is, is, is somewhat different. In all these different areas, you know, one area focuses on this, one area focuses on that, and that's why I've always said that the central body of leadership, um, you know, uh, you know, something like a, a commissioner or a star, um, to be able to enforce these rules, um, you know, across the board, uh, so that they're they're not different in, in, in each jurisdiction. In, in taking a look at, you know, even when you go right down to it with the pylon rule, you know, um, you know. That, that from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, even the hardcore gamblers uh, that come to the races are massively confused by by the pylon rule. Um, so you know, look, yeah, we, we have a lot of different uh, you know we have a lot of different issues in the sport and things like that. And look, I, I you know I'm some of my best friends uh, you know are, are drivers, and you know um, you know these guys you know they're doing what they're allowed to do, 
again, at the end of the day, I just think that uh, we, the, the rules need to be enforced from jurisdiction to juris- jurisdiction to be the same. Uh, so, you know, and it even, you know, right down to the trainers as well. You know, allowed to use this in one place and not allowed to use this in a different place. You know, it, it causes mass confusion for everybody. And that's why I've always said that we need a central body of leadership. And I've always thought that the, the USDA um, is, is perfectly placed for that. Yeah, and, and that's, that was going to be my question to the group is is it incumbent on the USTA to actually create rules of racing that fit all jurisdictions? I mean, there's, what, 60 directors. So th- there's there's representation at every level, theoretically. Uh, can't they put something together that acts as the rules of racing? In my opinion, yes. But right now, the way that it's done... You know, the, the way that, you know, it, it's, we're there to, to, to put the rules together, and it really only affects county fair racing because each jurisdiction has their, you know, their own their own rules. But I've always said, when I first went on the board of directors uh, several, you know, back about 10 years ago, um, I always said that the chairman of, of each district should be working with the regulatory body uh, that they represent and making sure that the rules that we pass at the USDA are also passed at those, uh, at those, you know, and put in place in those jurisdictions with those regulatory bodies. So we're all on the same page. Um, but you know, you, you know, we, uh, we have to do something. And yes, my opinion is, is that the USDA um, is perfectly positioned to be able to, to, uh, to do, to do these kind of things. And I think, I think what you're going to see from, from a guy like Russell Williams, who's the, the president, and I, you know, Russell's a great guy. And, you know, I think you'll start to see that, you know, he'll start making some headway towards these types of things, um, in, you know, in his own time and fashion. And, and I think that he'll be a great leader for the USDA. Let's just spot hand also. Um, I just want to mention one thing. You know, you read that email from that gentleman, and, and he's right. He was right on on, on target. And you know, people realize, you know, it, people aren't stupid. The betters, the betters know that the product's not that good on these, uh, especially on the smaller tracks. And you know, I've been following this sport and, and reporting on the sport for decades, and I've met thousands of horse players. And many of the harness players that I've known over the years, including some, you know, quite a few professional gamblers, now bet the thoroughbreds. So we had these, you know, heavy regular gamblers and not, and also moderate gamblers who bet harness on a regular basis who switched to the thoroughbreds. And the reason why they, and the reason why they switched is the payoffs. So, you know, we're talking about the flow and about about the speed bias, but the thing is, it affects the payoffs. And if you don't have good payoffs, it makes it too difficult to gamble on the on the product. And that's why yeah, they switched to the thoroughbreds. That's true. I know of I know of four uh, seven figure plus gamblers that have left the Meadowlands in the last few years. Three of them have gone to the thoroughbreds. And, and that is true. When I was at the uh, OTB parlor over in New York, I met probably about 50 of them that have left Harness Racing and have gone over to the thoroughbreds. You have to have good payoffs. You also need good yeah. pools. So today I, at Gulfstream, they have a million Andy, six picks. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so Andy, you, uh, I believe it was Andy that said it, uh, Three of the four uh, that he knows, uh, seven-figure gamblers, have left the Meadowlands. And you're saying that they have left the Meadowlands because of the, the product, or they have left the Meadowlands because of the size of the pools? Because, you know, actually our pool size is, you know, still, we just did a press release yesterday, and I believe it was $208,000. So it's still holding, you know, holding sway with the uh, last race. That's, that's um, true. Economy. But they left, they left a little bit before you guys came along. And... Uh, the Meadowlands is actually a success story in a, in a sense because uh, if you look at the Meadowlands handle, it's essentially double of the next track in our industry, which is sort of unheard of. There's nothing like that in the thoroughbreds. And the Meadowlands is doing the best job of giving people what they want, which is 10 horses on a mile track, as I said in the beginning. So uh, the, if every track would be like the Meadowlands, uh, harness racing would be booming, but the problem with the Meadowlands is they are in an unlucky situation in that the surrounding states have slots and they don't. So it's a distorted economy, and they don't have enough money to uh, to race in up days. Um, and it would be great if every track was like the Meadowlands. Our handle would be a lot better because one of the things that the Meadowlands 
gives you are crossover thoroughbred players. Thoroughbred players will come over and play the Meadowlands or a little bit would, would, would buy in Mohawk. They don't, what thoroughbred players don't want to see, and I think most players don't want to see, are lineups. They don't want to see horses follow each other for long periods of time, like over a quarter of a mile. And at the Meadowlands, there's more action, generally speaking. There's more action, especially when you're putting 10 horses on the track. So that's the kind of product that is a, probably our best product now. Yeah, you have to have you have to have good payoffs. You know, that's the, a lot of these tracks, half mile tracks and five eight tracks. The favorites are winning at forty four percent, forty three percent. Post eight never wins anymore on half mile tracks. Right. Yeah. You know, so there, you, what do you? How are you going to make any money? I mean, if you're if you're at the track, like I can remember when I was a teenager, I started going. When I was seventeen years old. I could walk into the track with a hundred dollars, and and I'd be down for my last twelve dollars, and I box three horses and hit a hundred dollar exact and walk out even. Now the exactors pay ten dollars. Like you can't get even. You, can't, you know. <laughs> right. You, you know. You can have five 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 winners and one loser, and you're lost for the night. Yeah, there's not there's not much opportunity. You're no. grinding. You're grinding down the betters, and the right. betters realize that, so they say, "Hey, I'll go to Gulfstream." And I think Les was going Les, you were going to mention Gulfstream, right? Yeah. Well, for example, today at Gulfstream, they've got a million five pick six carryover. Okay, I know the joint's going to be packed. Yeah, uh, matter of fact, the pool's a, I think the I'm going to go, uh, so I can get my Florida doubleheader. But uh, yeah, that's a rainbow uh, bet, though, isn't it? it uh, okay. No, that's a straight pick six. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah. This is uh, Fred Deles. Are they charging admissions at Gulfstream? No admission for no admission, no parking fees, uh, and and people go there. It, right. And for that, for the um, Pegasus, they did charge. They were charging what a hundred bucks a person for general. Yeah, admission? And, and they've kind of they kind of felt that they they made a mistake there. To be honest with you, uh, they 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 had a good crowd, they had a nice crowd and a huge handle, but they felt that they should have probably half that and made it a little bit more affordable to the general public. Uh, but the, the, I think the pools that's are enormous. A, you, know, you know, the pools are enormous at Ghosting. Uh, I looked a couple of Sundays ago. I was uh, looking at one of the races. The exact the pool was three hundred forty thousand dollars. That was just right. one pool. Right. right. I, and, I mean, and, I, and the interesting thing is, though, if if you looked at if you looked at the quality of racing at Gulfstream, particularly in the middle of the week, and you looked at the quality of racing at the Meadowlands, and, and you kind of said, okay, this is almost equal between thoroughbred quality and standardbred quality. Okay, because the midweek product at Gulfstream is not that great, but they're still they're still piling it on, and even on Sundays where their their product is not good, they're still getting huge huge pots and uh, a lot of handle. Yeah, but the favorites don't dominate. That's the thing. The payoffs are good. As long as you have full fields, as long as you have full fields, a good payoff. You have big fields. Like at the Meadowlands, the, the quality of the racing is not what it used to be, but they have big fields, and they create, for, for harness racing, a very good handle. But the other thing that's similar to between the two tracks, in my opinion, is the customer experience. Okay? You go to Gulfstream, and our, our joke is it's like South Beach meets Las Vegas at the beach. You know, and the Meadowlands... You know, is a great consumer experience as well. And I think that has a lot to do with it as, also, as, at least long-term. What do you guys think? Well, uh, and I'll answer this question right away because this is right where my wheelhouse is is because I believe in customer service, customer service, customer service. And, you know, listen, there's a reason why Disney World is successful, right? I mean, you, you know, people stand in line for, you know, two hours to ride a ride. It's because... You know, they're making memories, right? And a lot of people say, well, that's, that's corny, you know, uh, making memories type thing. But listen, I mean, that's what you're doing. When you're in the entertainment business, you have to give customer service. And customer service is more than just opening the gate and getting the heck out of the way. It's making sure that your customers are comfortable, that your, 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 your customers are comfortable, the place is clean, and people feel safe. And if you, if you, have, those, if you have those three things and you're responding to the customers, you know, one of the things that we do at the at the Meadowlands as well, um, and all the other tracks that, that I that I run, is that 
you know, we have a rule, a hard pass rule, that if we get a, an email to our media account, that we have we have 24 hours to respond to that to that customer, unless it's something completely off the wall and, and you know and you know. But um, you know, we have 24 hours to respond to that customer's email that they've sent us, and you know, and making sure that these people are getting responses from track management and showing them. You don't know how many emails that I get back from 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 people that email us, we email them back right away, and, you know, uh, they say to us, they say, you know, I can't believe that you guys are emailing me back, I so much appreciate this, you know, you're taking care of it, you know, because you have to make people, these customers that come to the racetrack, the gamblers, or just just fans, or just people that are coming in for the first time, you have to make sure that you're you're addressing them, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things I've always said, is that, you know, the Disney model, they have it, and they have it right, and that's one of the things that I teach here at the Meadowlands and uh, it, it is the customer service classes that we have. And we take those customer service classes um, at least a, a, twice a year. Um, you know, so uh, that, it's very, very important, the customer service, the customer experience, that which once you get them in the door, that, you know, you, you are making sure that they're comfortable, they're having fun, the place is clean, and that they also feel that they're safe. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something. Uh, to, I'm going to interrupt over here just for a second because uh, Jason hit on something there. And I was at the Hamiltonian a few years back, and there was a food issue at the Meadowlands. I turn around, and there's Jason bringing the food out and putting it in the trays and serving the food to the customers. He's the CEO of the Meadowlands, and that's how seriously he takes customer service. And I, I really, that really impressed me, Jason. I, I want you to know that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because for decades we would go to the track and you'd walk into the track and no one would say hello to you. No one would get your name or address. I went to the track probably for 20 years before anyone at the racetrack ever said to me, you know, who are you? What's your name? Uh, And, of course, the casinos have been doing that from day one. I mean, the first thing, you, the, you, 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 as soon as you walk into the casino, they're like, here, you got to get this card, play, you know, player's reward. So they, we really dropped the ball there. But the, but the Meadowlands, you know, the tracks that Jason uh, runs, uh, they do a much better job at that, obviously. Yeah. Definitely. From 6.15, I just want to point out, from 6.15 to 7.15 at the Meadowlands racetrack on live race night, that we are at the front doors, meaning management is at the front doors, opening doors, welcoming our guests, answering questions, pointing them in the right direction, signing them up for players' books cards, all those different types of things. You know, we, you know, because it's very, very important. I mean, everybody, you know, I've had a lot of people, you know, joke with me about it. I'll be standing at the front door, holding the front door, you know, on live race night from 6.15 to 6.45 is, my, is when I go down there, um, you know, and they'll say, what are you, the doorman tonight? And, uh, you know, yeah, but that's, I'll tell you, honestly, that's the most favorite part of my day because I get to interact with my customers and listen to what they're saying and helping them out. And I think that, you know, as track management, that we have to do a better job of welcoming, welcoming our guests, similar to what they do at these casino places when they, you know, the first thing you do is you walk into a casino and there's a host there. Uh, ready to get you your players club card and uh, you know and, and pointing you in the right direction of where you want to be you wonder why that's not being done at all the tracks because that's not real hard stuff is it jason no uh, it's very very simple um you know to, to stand there at the, at the front doors and, and smile and welcome your guests and, and talk to them you know for the first hour that 750 before your live racing starts, you know, and again, I get enjoyment out of it because I get to interact with, with my customers and that's, you know, and that's how I feel. And I've always felt that way. And I think it's a very important part of, of the, of the experience for the customer that they feel welcome as soon as they, as soon as they pull up. Another question to back up to this, to the rest of the group is, do you get that same thing when you go to other racetracks guys? Uh, do you, you know, if you go to a different track, particularly some of the smaller tracks, do you get that kind of welcome home type of environment? No, I mean, Jason and, and the, the Gorel tracks uh, are the only ones who really focus on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. So. Because part of what the emails that we got over the week, during the week, 
people were talking about just that item, that they don't feel welcomed at the racetracks. Some and, of the tracks that you walk in, they don't know if you're a right. horse player or a casino player. But that should have no, mattered. Sure. Yeah, that, that's my question. Should it matter if you're going to the casino or the racetrack? Shouldn't you be treated the same way? Yeah, and, you, and you're not. Yeah, you're like 100%. Right. But I know when I go when you go going to Pompano Park, they assume that you're you're in the minority if you're going in there with a program or something, you know. But you know, one of the, it's one of the other great things that we do too. Is, you know, and uh, and the greatest thing, you know, and because Jeff and I feel the same way about customer service, and you know, listen, I mean, you know, I Jeff and I when we have group parties at the Meadowlands Racetrack, which is you know dials right into the food and beverage portion of it. Jeff and I go and visit each one of the guests in those in those parties in our skyboxes or in Victory Sports Bar or out on the terraces. We go and visit those groups um, and, and see that make sure everything is, is going okay and that the service is what they want it to be. And you know, I, I mean, those are types of things that we do, and that's I believe that that's one of the reasons why in our catering business that we get so much repeat business because you know not only is our food great. But we're also checking to make sure with them all the time that everything is okay. No, my son-in-law actually plans his company's Christmas party based on your availability. So we we know that, and he's he's a tough critic. So if you you make him happy, you got to be really good. So, but but what other things do you think the racetracks can do to make the fan actually feel more comfortable once they get there, particularly the younger fans with kids? Oh, the, yeah, the seating is important. You know, a lot of these tracks aren't laid out that well. Uh, and you know, Andy and I talk about this sometimes because yeah. we go sometimes to Poconos, Pocono Downs. Yeah. And Pocono Downs has a patio outside. Right. They have table. They have table seating. Right. right. So I I go there with my wife and another couple, and and I sit there. We have a few beers. We get something to eat. Right. And a lot of a lot of the tracks, there's like there's really not very good seating. It's just like, you know, uncomfortable seats. There's no so. Well, well, I, I think like stadium seating is, you don't really need much stadium seating. I think today people have devices, people have tablets, and they like to sit and they like to be at a table. And many of these tracks really do not have uh, anywhere comfortable where you could sit outside. If you go to Chester, I mean, there's a zillion little plastic seats glued to a long, uh, a long cement uh, row, and there's nobody in those seats because they're not comfortable. They're not giving you a table. But if you go to Pocono, the first seats that are filled are what they call the party patio, where they're giving you a table and chairs, and you could sit down and be comfortable. So I think that's that's. And also remember, when you're at the track, you're watching the race for two minutes, and then there's 15 minutes or so in between. So uh, you're not even you don't need even to look out at the track that much in those 15 minutes. You know, I, I think we have to focus on some uh, more entertainment between races to get people out there. Um, I do think that, you know, I, I've said this a hundred times, uh, I've been to the steeplechase races, and it's a, an event going to them. And they, they have winer, wineries there. They have all types of displays. They have all types of tents all over the place selling merchandise. And they have music. They have bands going and it's a it's an event, and I think we have to start focusing for our bigger races on event type event type event type atmosphere. It's true because yeah, so we're asking people to stay there for four or five hours, so we better keep them occupied, right? Correct. Yeah, that's what they do for the Hamiltonian, but uh, but but that's a good point. You could probably do it for for more days too, whenever there's a, a stakes race. Yep, I been asking people this the last month or so when they go to the racetrack do they rely on a print program or do they rely on their tablet or or a device and more and more people are telling me devices but there's there are some standard bread tracks that don't even have wireless that that's kind of crazy to me yeah that is crazy <laughs> it's it really is <laughs> Yeah. You, you pretty much have to yeah, you have to get with the times because especially the younger generation they do everything on their phones and they, you got to have an app. Every racetrack should have an app first of all. Yeah, or or a functional yep. industry app 
that yeah. people could, you know, again, let, I hate to throw this back to the U USDA, but boy, why, why not do an industry app like some of the Equibase or a variety of other different services have so that people have access and that they can use the tools? We well, just got I'm going to I'm going to jump in here real quick. Um, Jason Rico, he's got a virtual reality game out there that's addressed some of these issues. And the Hong Kong Race Jockey Club has already done this. They've already invented the app. And so all we have to do is copy what they've done. Uh, it's it's not that difficult. No. No, it just takes... Yeah. It, you have to break the inertia to do, actually do it, though. Correct. We just yeah, got he, another uh, text message. Greatest contributor to the downfall of harness racing, and this is from James in Canada. So... Maybe we can answer, talk to it. Maybe we can't. Greatest contributor to the downfall of harness racing in the past 15 years is the VLT purse money. Uh, you cannot sell this product to the public because it's not made for the public. Races are now race for the horsemen, not for the racing industry. Proof is well documented. The greater overnight purse structure, the more you can see how the race plays out as a driver securing his portion of the purse, not flat out going for the win. The public is not stupid. Now, with many choices, there's no reason for a fan to play a track that where he's not competent and comfortable to win. Any comments on that? I, I got one. You know, we could change and have a weak card where we have winner-take-all. Um, that would change it. Everyone would have to be out there trying. Try yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it depends on, you know, I, I understand what he's saying. You know, a lot of these, these tracks... Is, you have the, you have these really good drivers, but they give each other tucks, and you know they they yield the lead right away. So I don't I don't know how you get past that though. Uh, it seems that some circuits the drivers are much more aggressive. Like I've been playing Miami Valley in Ohio. Miami Valley is a five H track, but it's a much better five H track than most of the tracks. It has a long stretch. The favorites are only winning thirty two percent, but the drivers you know the Ohio drivers are much more aggressive than drivers at a lot of tracks. So uh, it doesn't look like they're just there to collect the, the casino purses. I mean, it, so you got, I know somehow or another, you got to get through to the drivers. You, you got to be aggressive. But let, let me ask you, what are the pots like at Miami as opposed to some of the other similar tracks? Uh, well, the purses are pretty good because they have slots. You know, it, uh, like the purses, they've got some purses tonight, $22,000, 11000 13000 so I mean, it's uh, even though it's a relatively new track, they have the slots. Like tonight, if, in 14 races, 12 of their races, they have nine or 10 horses. So they have full so, fields. You know, they they have no passing lane. Um, and for some reason, the speed doesn't hold up that good there. I don't know if it's a slower surface. Well, of course, it has a longer stretch, which helps. Uh, and the the drivers are aggressive, and the favorites are only winning 32 percent. So that's the track I've been betting because. I can hit some you know, decent exactors and triples. The question for you, though, is if the pots are 22,000 there and they're 3,300 somewhere else and you're a driver, are you going to be a little bit more aggressive going for that $22,000 pot than the $3,300 pot? I don't think that that makes a difference because the, 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 the worst driving is probably at Yonkers and the purses are the highest there and the drivers are the best drivers. Well, when you have high purses, you have better horses and that and those horses yeah. hold their speed better. So therefore, sometimes drivers are more tentative to move at those horses because it could be suicide. It goes right. back to the beginning. These horses are getting the mile too easy. In other words, the sport is out of balance. Um, it's like, um, if you look at tennis today, tennis has changed. They have the, with, when the rackets changed, the game changed. If you were to make baseball aluminum bats instead of wooden bats, the game would change. It would go out of balance. Our game has gone out of balance. The horses are good, the bikes are fast, and the speed holds. Therefore, you get races that look like, you know, uh, Use a Rodney Dangerfield joke in in oil painting sometimes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yannick, I was talking to Yannick Ingris last week, who's one of the top drivers, and he agreed with me that you know he says, well, he says I could just put a horse on the lead, and I could just keep pushing him. 
is I don't have to try to rate them. You know, you don't have to rate them anymore. You just put them on the lead and just keep asking them to go faster and faster, and they never stop. Yeah, so, no, it's a it's a different dynamic right now, especially as you guys mentioned earlier with the drivers laying back that they're going to push it, come from off the horse back at least the length, the length and a half. Right. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, we could talk about marketing. We could talk about anything you want to talk about. But if we don't slow down these races and get and stop the speed bias and, you know, get a more well-balanced race where the outside posts win as often as they used to and everything and get better payoffs, it's just not – there's nothing else that's really going to work. Either you have to you have to either slow down the races somehow with slower bikes or something, or you have to race longer distances because if you race longer distances, then the races go slower you know, because you can't. You know, if you're going a mile and a half race, you can't go out to the lead in 26. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to go wire to wire. So, but I think those are only two things you can actually do, either longer distances or just slower, slow the races down with slower bikes or something. Well, you, you, have to, you have to, induce, in order to get a good race, you have to induce a double tier as long as possible. The longer that horses line up in a row, not only is that boring for the people to watch, but that's but it, the speed holds and the race is worse. So at the Meadowlands, there's less, there's more double tiering, and you need to have horses challenging. And right now, <clears throat> when the horses are good and the track is small, speed holds. So um, <clears throat> the only thing I can figure out is to is to change the regulation on the bikes and try to make it harder for the horses to pull the bikes. And uh, and that therefore change the chemistry a little bit back to the way it used to be, which was more exciting. Yeah. By, by the way, you know, uh, right. Les, uh, uh, you know, we were knocking Yonkers, but Yonkers does run uh, mile and a quarter trot races, which are simulcast to Europe. Right. And and those races are infinitely better than that one mile races. In fact, the la the last fourteen races they ran at a mile and a quarter, the average win payoff was thirty dollars. And like Andy's saying. Uh, there is second tier because they put 10 horses in those races. So there's a horse outside right from the start because there's two horses in the, in, in the second tier. So there's, right. the, there's no single foul racing. I mean, it's, there's action right from the start. You, you have to pull early there right. or you can get so far yeah. in the back it'll be ridiculous. So there's more action in those races and they're more exciting. In fact, I thought the Garau, uh, a 12-horse field, at a mile and an eighth was a great race. They double tiered there from the start, but the drivers didn't want to didn't want to drive it. But they, yeah, they I, actually, I, I, yeah, I told you, yeah. a great handle in that on that race. You know that yeah, longer distance also helps the breeding industry, and, and that that's one of the things I think that's lost is we're, we're always breeding for the same thing, and some female families and some sire families probably would be better served if they could breed to a mile and a quarter or a mile and a half. And, yeah, and that, that may help that situation a little bit as well. That's a good point. And, and you know, if, if you look at thoroughbred racing, you had a horse named uh, Zenyatta a few years ago who was a horse who, who sat back 20 to 25 lengths and won 19 races in a row. Right. And it was incredibly exciting. And she was a big, monstrous horse. A horse like that would have absolutely no chance in harness racing. We haven't had a famous standard bred horse that comes from off the pace in 30 years. Well, Saturday, we used to have. Saturday Arrogate uh, won the Dubai World Cup. He got left at the gate, was 12, 14 lengths behind at the start, and won the race. Yeah, that was phenomenal. And, exactly. And it was absolutely thrilling. Right, people, exactly. People that we had only like on Sports Center were talking to me during the week at how how dramatic that was, and so you yeah, guys are right. That's yeah. what that's what the public wants. Years ago, we had horses like that. Well, I don't know if people. I mean, like some of you guys may not be as old as I am, but uh, Sir Dowray yep. uh, was was a spectacular closer. He'd make these giant wide moves down the back stretch. Um, Nicolakis Leroy yeah, was a famous horse. In the, yeah, he was a right. famous horse in New York. He'd sit dead last. He'd right. go like four. He'd go four wide around a target Yonkers, and he'd come. He'd come from dead last and win. Mr. Caramia, remember him? Mr. Caramia, yep. You see, and these are the horses that people remember. You know, and again, I think you know NASCAR has restrictor plates for their big tracks and 
certain races. I'm wondering if if you can put some sort of restrictor plate on the bikes in, in certain circumstances. That I don't, that I don't know, but I think there's two problems with the bikes. One of them, well, first of all, they're offset, which I think is ridiculous because in the start you have some horses going a shorter mile. But uh, the bikes make it so easy <clears throat> for them to for them to pull to pull these horses around, and it just makes the horse it's it's so easy to get this mile for the horse. They need to get more tired out. So you have that, and you also have these long hand holes with these guys leaning back and bumping back the horse behind him and the horse behind him and the horse behind him. So there's there's two problems there. Well, also add from our old bikes that we used to race, and we were a lot closer to the horses. Um, That's now, what I'm saying. You know, yeah. My, yeah my, my feet used to be up past the stifles when I raced the horse. Now um, your your feet doesn't even your feet are not even near the rear end of the horse. That's how far back we've moved. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's another part of the whole problem: eh? the, the distance between the, the the horses. Yeah, and I wonder yeah, and how, how that visually affects the consumer too. You know what what they think about this whole the, thing the, of the, the, the driver practically so, being a different area. The, the consumers, uh, the fed in public, when they look at drivers leaning back, the first thought that goes in their head is that they're holding the horse back. And that's the way that they look at it. They, they don't look yeah, at it like they're yeah. trying to go with the horse. Yeah, and you know, another thing about all this, too, is we're, we're taking a lot of the finesse out of the game. Like, uh, Carmen Abatello was uh, interviewed a few years ago. He's a Hall of Fame uh, driver who's retired. And he said, well, now that you don't have to rate the horses, he says there's no uh, technique involved in driving a horse. You just go to the lead and just keep pushing your horse, you know. So, you know, those drivers that you used to marvel at, like Buddy Gilmore or Brian Sears or John Campbell, you know, the guys who were like a finesse driver who would win from off the pace, that's going to be a, more and more of a lost art because all the top drivers now are pretty much the guys who just gun the horse to the lead. So, you know, we've talked about a number of these problems in we're just about at the end of the hour, and I, I appreciate you guys. Great insight. I've learned a lot from you. Uh, we're going to be doing this again. Uh, next month, we're going to have a panel uh, that will be of owners and breeders. And then after that, we're going to do one with trainers and drivers. And then we're going to, and that's going to be particularly interesting because I think both the drivers are going through changes. And with uniform drug regulations and everything else, the trainers are going through changes. So it would be interesting to hear their perspective. And then we're going to get the kids on here, the guys under 30, both uh, that are in the bike and in the barn, and try and get that perspective as, as we keep trying to push this forward and get the, the important subjects out. Uh, again, it's been great having everybody on board. Uh, any last comments by anybody? Uh, are, are we going to have time to take any questions from any of the um, public out there? Uh, if we had calls, they probably would have, uh, Doug would have put them through. We've had a bunch okay. of texts and emails, uh, but I don't think we've had any calls. As a matter of fact, I'm getting the message that we haven't. Uh, I wonder if I'd we... just like to say real quickly, too, that, uh, you know, thanks, Les, for having me on. And uh, certainly appreciate it, and I appreciate it. Listen to these other guys as well. Um, you know, it gives me a perspective from where they're coming from as well. So I, I certainly learned something here this hour. No, I and, you know I love this sport. Uh, it was very very good to me. Uh, you know, years ago we uh, promoted uh, the sale in Atlantic City with Lana Lobel, and uh, you know managed standard bread farms uh over the years uh so this has been a good great sport to me and uh if we can give back you know we're here to to do that and we want to see see this pass on to all our kids and grandkids but as, as sammy sosa once said baseball has been very very good to me harness <laughs> racing has been very very good yeah. to me <laughs> Well, that's the, the, we all we all love the sport so it just yep. uh, it kind of pains me to see what we what we've done to it, <laughs> but <laughs> well, you, you know, self-inflicted. <laughs> you know, there, there's there's passion 
in in your voices and I've net I mean we probably got two dozen emails since uh, we put up the post on Facebook that we were going to do this show. Uh, we, we don't get that kind of response typically. So obviously the people that are involved really love the sport. We just have to make sure, you know, marshal it through. And uh, with, with you guys involved, I'm sure we will. So we'll wrap it up for now. We thank the panel for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll thank, be thank back with another. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me, Les, and thanks for doing this. No, my, my pleasure. We'll be back with another roundtable uh, in four weeks, and uh, we'll have our next episode is a thoroughbred episode. I hate to say that in front of you guys, uh, but th again, thanks a lot. And this thank is you. the Thank you, Les. Thanks. And this is the Equisport Radio Network uh, finishing this episode, and we hope to see you back real soon. Sarah's Burke here they come, spinning out of the turn. Dancers, Bearcat, puts ahead in front. TK Skipper fights back down along the rail, and they slug it out. TK Skipper has the lead along the rail. Dancers, Bearcat, second, Freight Saver to the outside in third. Kurtz first, down along the rail, fourth, down the stretch, inside the furlong marker. TK Skipper about to win another. Freight Saver on the outside, and along the rail, Rare Storm. But it's TK Skipper again. Another fine performance. TK Skipper by two and a half, Freight Saver second, Rare Storm third.